back. It is a absolutely beautiful thing. No, I am not going to uh, be the guy who shares all the, oh my god, college football is never going to happen posts, even though I am a little pleased about it. Not sure if you watched any of it. I don't think you did, but no way. it was very <laughs> exciting. It was just very exciting for me to see a college sport on a television. It was occurring. There were some fans there. It was ugly at times. The uh, my, my bet on let's go P Austin P. I had them at a had them at four and a half on on Bobot Sportsbook. Fell through. Tough loss, but nonetheless, it was great to see college sports back, and uh, we are inching closer to. A college basketball season that I'm gaining more confidence that will occur each day. Uh, watching the NBA as well. It's, it, is a, it is a good time to be a sports fan. Absolutely. I watched the uh, Celtics-Raptors today, this afternoon. And Bovada had it, I, I think, Raptors minus two. And uh, oh. Celtics, I mean, just beat the crap out of them. I, mean, I, don't, just... I don't think I've ever seen Jason Tatum miss a shot. He has like these crazy fallaways. He can get any mid-range shot he had want, he he's ever wanted. And now Jalen Brown is like a knockdown three-point shooter. <laughs> you know, watching him at Cal, you know, we never would have thought that he would develop just a well-rounded offensive star that, that he is now. I mean, we were talking last week about title windows in regards to Philly, but you know, the Celtics hitting on. Brown and Tatum with those high lottery picks. I mean, their their window is like infinite almost at this point. It, it's like Spurs esque, um, you know. Just you know, once once they get you know Kyrie, Horford, and Hayward, you think that their, their window is X. But now that you know Brown and Tatum are you know, e- even better than uh, Kemba Walker, you know, it's and uh, Gordon Hayward obviously too. Uh, you know, they're they're. In the early 20s, that, that window could extend you know, another 10, 12 years. Right. Well, one of the interesting things about the Celtics um, is essentially that they, like, they, like you said, they created a, a window. They created a core of a team to win a championship. And it all kind of failed, right? Like, Horford was a great signing. He worked out well for them. He, he did the job. But Kyrie was an absolute disaster. Hayward's contract has really been pretty much a disaster. He's not really the same guy since the injury. Um, and good drafting. I mean, and it helps. They were they they were probably in the best position in the league at one point where they had all the picks and the good players and could do what they wanted. But the the stark contrast in watching the Celtics and the Sixers both being in great asset positioning and having good players. And one just blowing it completely, and one really nailing it, uh, it is revealing. And no more revealing, obviously. Uh, nothing more revealing, excuse me, than the uh, the Fultz and Tatum trade, which at the time looked really dumb. At least from like a, do you like Fultz or Tatum more? I think like everyone was in on Fultz. I was in on Fultz. Right. It was. Now, it was. It was Fultz is better, but Boston gets that second pick, so maybe right. Tatum plus player X will be better than. Isn't Fultz. that this year's Memphis pick? Right. Um, no, no. this year's Memphis pick was Jeff Green. It was last year's Sacramento pick, who they took Romeo Langford. Right, which people thought was going to be like a great asset. It, right, but Sacramento you know, was actually pretty solid last year. And then Memphis this year was super surprising. Right. Where I think everyone had them you know, 
toward the back of the lottery with the rookie point guard and the you know just general inexperience across across the team. I mean, their their most proven player coming into the year was like Valanciunas, right? But but they got great great contribution from Jaron Jackson and uh, John Morant, two two guys who I'm sure college basketball listeners are um, very familiar with. It is very funny whenever I see people still bring up the whole uh, playing. Ben Carter over Jaron Jackson against Syracuse in the round of 32. Yes. Um, <laughs> against the zone, and now Jaron Jackson is like one of the best stretch four fives in the in the whole world. Yeah, the fact that him and Nick Ward each got 20 minutes a game while he was feeding Xavier Tillman 10 minutes a game, Gavin Schilling 10 minutes a game, and Ben Carter 8 minutes a game is still just horrible. Um, but regardless, like, yeah, the, the, the Tatum pick is the big one, but there were so many. Like asset maximization things along the way that the Celtics have done a really nice job of, the Sixers have not, and there's a reason why they are, like you said, in fantastic position. I also think the other thing um, about the Celtics, before we go too far into the NBA, it's just like they do a great job with role player acquisition, right? Like Tice is a terrific, you know, know your role center. Um, he's not the same player as March and Gortat, but like. He reminds me of him in that way where he's like on a playoff team and he does exactly what you need him to do and nothing more. Uh, you know, good defender, does what he, you know, helps out around the rim, whatever. Um, Wanamaker was hitting shots today. Uh, Robert Williams has been giving them really nice minutes as, as a, you know, I think late first that they got him, like maybe in the 20s. Um, I mean, they're even trotting out guys like Ojale and some of those, some of those pieces that you didn't expect a ton of that have turned into again, you know, useful NBA players, right? And when you're watching some of these teams in the, you know, in the playoffs have such horrible benches or such thin benches, you're saying, oh, maybe, you know, maybe Semi Ojale could, could help someone, you know, a significant amount, you know. Could he be helping the Rockets right now? And it is, uh, it is very impressive to see what the Celtics have done. They're a fun team to watch when they're hitting shots, without a doubt. Yeah, oh, Ojale would be great on on uh, Houston because you know he's he's very good at like one specific thing and that's being able to guard like these bigger wings because he's just so strong. Like right. like today, like he, he he did a great job on uh, uh, Pascal Siakam, just you know be, being super physical and forcing Siakam into like these kind of running jump hooks. Um, think think Siakam at one point was like f- four for fourteen. Um, we had that uh, Celtics bench, which was you know it's. It's seen as a weakness because there's not a lot of pop on it, right? There's not a lot of, you know, offensive talent. And then when Hayward goes down, you move smart in the starting lineup. That's even less offensive talent. Uh, but Wanamaker, who I think is like one of the best plus-minus guys in, in the NBA, it, it's it's kind of funny because I guess the metrics love him. But like listening to a lot more NBA podcasts recently, the sentiment is that like Wanamaker is horrible. And if you know basketball and you're not just some stat nerd, then you know he's horrible. But you know, whenever I've watched, he's been okay. Um, he's just he, he has no explosion. He's like a below average shooter, except he's like an elite free throw shooter. But um, in terms of a perimeter shooter, and you know, he he he's not a very pretty player, but he seems to be pretty effective at least when I've seen him. Um, and then Robert Williams, as you mentioned, is you know really blossoming into this uh, like rim protecting, like super athletic under size center um and you know Ojale gave them great minutes today on, on the defensive end and 
you know, they they have a lot of young guys like a Grant Williams, someone who I know a lot of people really, really love, and I've seen people give up on him, but I'm sure he'll be a really solid piece moving forward too. Yeah. No, I, I would tend to agree. Um, as we record this show, we are uh, doing it on our, our normal Sunday nights. We are. I'm watching the the Nuggets uh, versus Jazz game. Have bet the bet the Nuggets on Bovada on this one. Hopefully, saves my uh, saves my account because we've been uh, we've been struggling lately. But Denver uh, down six after a quarter again. What is what does a Bovada have for the over in that game? The over because uh, Denver doesn't play a whole. A lot of defense. Hold on a second here. Let me check. So the number was 230 and a half. That's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. That's like, a, what, 122 to 110 final or something? It's also very possible. Given, again, they don't play a lot of defense. Should we move on to college? Yes. Yes, we should. Um, so we should probably start um, with with the schedule, right? We don't have a schedule um, at this point. But we are starting to get a sense of what a model might look like. Uh, and so a lot of the, the discussion at this point, and, uh, Matt Norlander has reported extensively on this, uh, around two dates, November 25th, and December the 4th as start dates. Um, people say, oh, well, that's only two, three weeks after the normal start. Why is it different? Well, it's different because kids are off campus. So, you know, it buys you time. It also, I mean, you can just kind of skip ahead and do if you wanted to do some bubbles or pods or neutral courts with lots of hand sanitizer, uh, however you would like to refer to these uh, new, these neutral events. Uh, that That is also much simpler when kids are off campuses. But Regardless, it is a it is exciting that college basketball seems to be headed towards having something in place in September of a scheduling model, and I think a lot of the credit goes to Dan Gavitt, right? Having someone in the NCAA who is not directly in charge of basketball but has a lot of sway um, with conference commissioners, with ADs, with coaches, and also the NABC with Craig Robinson, I think also helps quite a bit, but. Things seem to be moving in a positive direction, right? We have some rapid tests hitting the market, which are critical. Um, college sports starting is a good first step. Um, I think it will be bouncy. We're even seeing the Pac-12 consider re- re- reconsider not playing until January, potentially could play in December. So maybe it's just blind optimism because it's early enough that we haven't dealt with all the, the problems yet. But it's uh, it's an exciting start, Brad. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, to a parrot the great John Rothstein, I think it's a no-brainer to start as soon as possible at that Thanksgiving break, right? And there's no reason, right, where where they can't just do like essentially like a tournament every weekend or something, right? Where you could do Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or I, I mean, it, it's over break, so you can really do any any days you want. You, know, you could even spread it out a little bit more. But you know how, like, the, the Puerto Rico tip-off in, in Maui and all that stuff, you'll have three games across three or four days. Um, you know, why can't we just do that every week? Just, like, make these kind of makeshift tournaments, shift teams across pods, um, and yeah. just kind of cram as many games into that stretch as you can, and then do a little maybe conference bubble 
when everybody's back or something? So my thought process is essentially this. These aren't, like, when we talk about college basketball bubbles, like, these aren't, these aren't bubbles in the NBA sense. These aren't really even bubbles in the TBT sense. These are bubbles, like, it makes no sense to travel four times to play four games. Like, that, that's really what it is, right? Right. And so the idea of, again, like, yeah, make, making your pre, having a bunch of teams go to one location where you could centralize the infrastructure to do some of the preseason tournaments. Another discussion about Disney, discussion about um, Mohegan Sun, Winthrop might be hosting something. Now the Sanford Pentagon, which is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, is considering, you know, considered a site for, for different events. Right? Like the idea of doing that and, and pumping out games is great. And the question will be is, is what types of models take shape for that December time frame? Is it everyone doing that? And then essentially, because I could see a situation where you'd have the only games being played essentially are games inside of pods where you could play multiple games in a short period of time and like driving distance games, right? So if Providence wanted to have Bryant come to town and play in front of like a quarter full arena uh, and Bryant gets like a $20,000 check instead of 80000 you know, that works for all involved. If Sienna wants to have U Albany or play UMass or play Marist and they want to bust that day, it's Marist in the conference, that wouldn't work. Colgate, right? Like, they can make that work. Northwestern could have Loyola come to town. Northwestern could have Marquette come to town. Like, all those things would work without having to stay in a hotel. Uh, and I know that I've, I've been one of the leaders in saying, like, the travel is not a huge concern because you just have less contact with people. But the less, you know, the less contact, the better. And so... Um, I could see that kind of developing into a model. I do think November 25th is going to be the day that we shoot for to start. Um, just because it makes sense to do that. I'm not sure every conference will be there. I think some conference may still have to wait till January. Some conference will say just play. In, like, like for instance, I think there's going to be non, there's going to be one bid leagues that say if they can't get by game money, they're just going to wait till January to play. I don't, I would not rule that out, but I do think that the plan of allowing teams to play some events in, in November and December and then go into conference play in January uh, is an intelligent way of doing things. Now, Brad, here's a question for you. Uh, I know, I believe the Norlander article floated the possibility that you would play, um, excuse me, conference games first. Essentially, you could bubble up your conference, play the conference games, play as many as you could, and then once you hit February... You're either just you're you're playing like some regional games, playing some non-conference games. Hopefully, it's a little easy, a little easier to travel, and then March Madness comes. What would you think of that model? Yeah, I, I guess because right, the most important things would be the conference games, right? And that makeshift bubble, right, the the the, the campus bubble, would be guaranteed for that first month and a half right so you could try to squeeze as many games as you can in there um and then maybe like like i kind of brought up earlier you know like a weekend tournament bubble in uh, february and march teams teams can try to build up their non-conference um it, it would be kind of funny if a team like like a villanova or something and now maybe villanova is good enough to not do this right but if they go 18 and 2 in the Big East portion, right? And then they just say, okay, I, I think we have a number one seed. Let's just play Penn, LaSalle, St. Joe's, right? All the local, te- Drexel, and, and just 
you know, kind of coast into like a 30 and two sort of thing before the uh, NCAA tournament. W- yeah. Would uh, Norlander's proposal have conference play, then non-conference play, and then conference tournament, and then March Madness, or just do- doing away with the conference tournament altogether? I don't think it was clear. It's just essentially said that there was a, just some discussion about playing conference first. And now here would be the other problem, right? So you mentioned that an interesting solution for the high major programs. Oh, you know, it's very beneficial to, you know, be able to essentially dictate your non-conference based on how the conference um, season goes, right? If you're a bubble team, you go out and get some games. If you're a, right. um, if, you know, if you're really set, you don't go out and play anybody. So here's, here's the other question. If you're a mid-major, are you not at all pleased with having to play your conference games first? Because you're getting no, you know, you don't get a warm-up period. And those are the games that really matter for, for gearing up to get the bid. Now, the other argument would be, well, it'd be good because then in February, you could maybe schedule some games to try to, you know, build up your resume. But would then teams not want to play you? If, they, if the schedules weren't set, and we're seeing college football, that schedules get made essentially week to week. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to me, all the dynamics. I would prefer to keep it, I, w- I, would, I would say, keep January and February as normal as possible, right? Like, maybe the scheduling models have to be adjusted, maybe they don't. Um, maybe you have to do a little bit more pod-like instead of playing games on the normal travel schedule. But try your best to play no- January and February normally, to allow, like, the Ivy League, for instance, to allow any league that doesn't want to play this fall to get on, get, do things somewhat normally, essentially, and then give people the to do as they please. I think, to me, that is the ideal situation for college basketball. And I, I, I think we're in a good place right now. I really do. I'm, I'm as confident as I've been in quite some time um, about college basketball finding a way to do things in some form or fashion. And then just one other thing too. I know that you you had mentioned that these kind of campus bubbles in air quotes, basically a non-conference site with with extra PRL. Which got, so you you've been on the road with the women's team yes. at a Northwestern. Let's say Northwestern is playing a road game at Indiana. Done that trip, right? So they stay at a hotel off campus? Correct. I don't know if Indiana is big enough to have a hotel on campus. So the only but, time I've stayed on an on-campus hotel is at Penn State. They have the Nittany Lion Inn, and we stayed at the Nittany Lion Inn. Right. So okay, we'll uh, touch on both, right? So Indiana, you're in, you're in the town of Bloomington at a off-campus hotel. Yes. Are the players allowed to leave? Like, can, can they leave the hotel and walk around and get, like, a... They go to a restaurant and if you're like leave, so so if you're so 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 if you're leaving the hotel, you have to like tell the director of ops so that they know you're leaving. So like for instance, when we were at Penn State this spring, we a bunch of the players wanted to go to the the creamery on Penn State's campus, like known for making great ice cream. So they like begged the director of ops throughout dinner, and then they were like, "Fine, you can go." So they all went. So, uh, if you would you like me to walk through? I think this podcast might actually enjoy it. Would you like me to walk through like the general flow of a road trip, and you can ask questions from there? Sure. Okay. 
So I'll walk you through the the uh, the Indiana road trip because I can like remember it pretty vividly. So the bus would leave at like five o'clock from the arena where we would practice. So you would practice and then immediately get on the bus and leave for the airport. So you bus, all sweaty. You shower after practice. Okay. People are allowed to do that. Um, so so you get on the bus. And there's, like, a team meal waiting for you that we picked up, like, catered. I think it was pasta for the Indiana trip. And then you bus to the airport. You get on the charter plane. You just literally, there's a back entrance. You drive in the back entrance. You pull up to the plane. You get off the bus. You walk onto the plane. You sit down. The flight is 40 minutes to Bloomington. You land in Bloomington. You walk onto the bus. And you bus to the hotel. It's now, like, 9 o'clock, let's say. Uh, there's food to grab and go once you get to the hotel in case you need something in the room or like a late night snack. Like one trip we had like a smoothie bar for us. Then you go to bed. Everyone has to be in bed by like 11. Uh, next morning, breakfast at the hotel, shoot around at the arena, back to the hotel for study hall usually. Uh, then a pregame meal, film, everyone changes. Then we go to the arena for the game and you hop on the charter afterwards. So essentially the, from like a, from like a contact perspective, very the little contacts you have with the outside world are your bus drivers, your plane, like a flight attendant, uh, and then like any security guy you might run into at the arena and like the hotel like front desk lady. It's very limited. Now, sometimes some teams I know will go out to eat more on the road. We eat in the hotel. Like the hotel will cater the food, um, but. You could also solve that problem very easily and just eat the hotel food, right? Like it wouldn't be hard or even have like food delivered to the hotel. So right. from that perspective, again, I don't think the travel should be a huge problem. Um, but I mean, the, if, if you'd like to imagine what a bubble would look like, uh, like Mohegan Sun, for instance, it would literally be like everyone comes in, they get tested every like a bunch before they arrive, they get tested when they arrive. They're allowed, they, they eat in like the ballrooms that are like catered for them. They practice in, like, the side rooms. They're not allowed to leave the hotel probably for any reason. So it's essentially no different, except the director of ops just says no to the ice cream trip. It really wouldn't change anything. You'd just be doing it for a week, which would be kind of annoying. Certainly seems doable. Yes. Definitely yeah, I think, doable for these short spurts. I think a lot of the media doesn't really understand that part. I think they, they underestimate the player's desire to play basketball, certainly. I think the, I think the concern um, I would have, and I don't know if actually people have talked about this, but the concerns with these shorter bubbles, which are like two weeks or less, is so the MLS bubble had two teams that had to drop out. And it was essentially because like right at the beginning of the bubble, they had a bunch of guys test positive when they started practicing who had like been carrying the disease when they got on the trip to go to the like the, the thing and they got their initial test negative and then they went to practice, but they were actually carrying it. Like they didn't, it wasn't detectable yet, essentially. Oh. And so that is the concern with the shorter bubble. And that's why the NBA has like the 10 day quarantine that everyone did or the seven days or whatever for the media. And then it's shorter for the teams that were trying on the charters was you had to, everyone had to quarantine to test a bunch of times to make sure that there was no chance you were carrying it. I think that's the main concern I would have with these bubbles that are shorter is like, you can't just have everyone fly in for you know a week, test them at the beginning, and just assume that no one has it for the rest of the week. Definitely, but and then 
in terms of like the on-campus experience, right? Like being the only people on, on campus. I mean, that would be wonderful. I remember <laughs> staying at school for Columbus Day weekend was like that. With there was like one percent of the people were there. It was like an absolute ghost town, and it was unbelievable. Well, it's funny to me that people keep saying there's an issue with that. Like, oh my god, only the athletes on campus. It's like as long as your friends are summer, there, it's, it's like. Have you ever heard? It's like unbelievable. Break? Yeah, it's fine. They're all there for basketball. Like they're not there to. I don't think the kids are going to be heartbroken that they don't have to like wait in a long ass line to get Starbucks. You know. Yeah. But, you know, it's ridiculous. The biggest thing they'll miss is that there's people, there's parties to go to. But they shouldn't be going to parties anyway right now. Right. <laughs> anyway. But yes, hopefully college, college basketball is on its way back. Rooting for college football to continue to have success after a good start with Central Arkansas and with Austin P. Let's go P. Go Govs. Unfortunately, it's a tough loss. So, Brad, let's talk about some uh, some some movement on the uh, the player front. Because there's been, some, been a bunch of them. The waiver train has certainly continued, and that will have a significant impact on the college, college basketball season, regardless of what the schedule looks like. And no no move was bigger. We'll start with Landers Nolly getting the waiver at Memphis. This was a waiver that didn't really clearly have a purpose when you were, like, d- diagnosing it from the outside, other than, I'm a good player and I redshirted before, please let me play. And the NCAA apparently took it, because he has a waiver to Memphis, and now Memphis has a really, really talented roster. Yeah, I would like to start with, with a PSA. Oh, boy. And the PSA is, if your team has not gotten your guy the waiver yet, you got to relax. you got to chill out. Okay? We still have three months, four months until, or, or three months until that Thanksgiving break. Waivers are being handed out daily. People are freaking out. Oh, player X only committed then. How does he have a waiver now? Like, I don't know, but just chill out and everyone's getting a waiver. The, the odds are astronomically in favor of your player getting a waiver, right? It, it is funny watching, you know, a guy like Landers Nolly gets a waiver and then you, you see, oh, Kentucky fans, oh, you know, what the hell, right? You see Minnesota fans, Providence fans, you know, all, uh, uh, DePaul fans with a Javon Freeman. There's... You guys just got to relax and let this play out. In terms of Landers Nolly, um, th- this is—I mean, this is a very big pickup, right? Adding to their collection of sophomores over at Memphis, um, I-, I think you could make a case that Nolly might be Memphis's best player. I think you could also make a case for Quinones or 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 Jeffries. Um, I was high on this Memphis team prior to the waiver for Nolly. I thought they were top twenty-five even before that waiver. Um, so this really moves them into, like, top 15 territory for me. Uh, the way I kind of look at this team is very similar to how I or, or how the 2017 Louisville team turned out. So that was the year prior, Louisville was a very good team, um, but was banned from the postseason. So that was the Damian Lee, Trey Lewis, uh, Louisville team. Those guys leave, um, and you have a trio of sophomores who were reserves on that team. You had Donovan Mitchell, you had Dang Adele, you had Raymond Spalding, who all three obviously ended up playing in the NBA. Uh, Mitchell's a star, and Spalding and Adele had cups of coffee. Um, but going into that year, I was very 
confused as to why everyone had Louisville so high, right? Because they're losing their best players from a team that wasn't typical Louisville caliber. Um, and they said, no, like the numbers are saying Donovan Mitchell, Dangadale, and Ray Spalding will all break out. And I'm looking at this team like, well, they're losing so much. All, all these guys need to make a jump for them to be this good. Um, but only Mitchell and Adele made that jump. Only those two guys uh, made, made a sophomore jump. I think Adele went from like four points a game to 12. And Mitchell went from like about seven to 15. Um, and that was enough to make Louisville ninth and Ken Palm. Uh, I, I, I feel a similar way with this Memphis team um, with most people being like, well, you know, they weren't that good last year and they you know, lose players X, Y, and Z. Uh, but they have so many guys who are highly rated and productive sophomores who are ready to take that step forward. Um, Quinones, Nolly, and, and, and Jeffries look like the leading candidate. But then you'll have Boogie Ellis and Damian Ball off, off the bench. Right, you'll have a great freshman, a rim protector, Musa Sise. You'll have Alex Lomax starting a point guard um, who, who started this uh, past year and really took a jump uh, at, as a sophomore. So uh, for me, this, this Memphis team is in great hands. And if they can get a waiver for DeAndre Williams, um, their, their ceiling will truly be um, out of the world. Yeah, no, I think that makes a ton of sense, Brad. Um, I agree with the Louisville point. I think it, it, it really is logical. Um, for me, I think one of the things with Nolly we have to remember is he was a guy who, at the beginning of the season, looked like really an All-American, right? Like, you know, he was having a huge game against Michigan State to win them that game. He opened, I think, with 30 against Clemson. He had some big games early in conference play against Virginia, NC State. Those were the wins that kind of brought them close to lock territory for the NCAA tournament. Um, but he fell off so much down the stretch to a point where he was shooting under 30% in the month of February, in a February there where they were very bad. Um, and so, you know, overall in conference play, the guy shot 34% from the field and 25% from three and had a negative assist to turnover ratio. And I do think that part of the story has to be written with, with Nolly as you as you write. Now, I do think he will be helped by having a lot more talent around him. You know, Jeffrey's a guy who can score. Quinones really spaces. Um, they won't be forcing him to play the four all the time uh, and guard bigger guys, so I think that will help. Um, hopefully they can get uh, uh, Williams a waiver as well. But I do think that is something to keep an eye on. It's just like, which Nolly do we get? Do we get a more consistent guy, or is he going to be up and down the same way he was? at Virginia Tech. And the other question I had for you, Brad, was you mentioned the point guard situation. You mentioned Lomax as your presumed starter. I did see uh, some Memphis fans who kind of pushed back on me when I said Lomax when we started. They said, oh, Ellis and Bob, one of them will win the job. I'm not really confident that that happens, um, particularly Ellis, who I thought really struggled as a decision maker last year beyond the shooting struggles. Um, I think, a, I think a better lineup, in my mind, would be either Lomax or just stylistically, it would be Lomax or Baugh, uh, Quinones, Nolly, Jeffries, and then a center. Uh, probably say you could play Williams if you wanted to go smaller. Um, but what do you, where do you stand on that backcourt trio? I mean, Ellis is a pretty standard breakout-type candidate, and since they're not relying on that as much. But uh, am I crazy for being very in on, on like just having Lomax as a steady like steady-handed point guard 
No, because I mean, maybe uh, semantically, Lomax won't be the starter, right? Because he only started four games last year. But he played 24 minutes a game. I'm pretty sure uh, down, down the stretch, he was really given the keys. Um, and they moved, I think, ball off the bench and slid Ellis over to the two, if, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I, I think Lomax is going to play a majority of the point guard minutes. So maybe he plays 25 minutes all, all at point guard, and then maybe Ball plays 15 behind him, even if Ball starts or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, Lomax is a, is a penny guy. He's a good facilitator. He, he can attack the basket, right? Going to be one of the older guys on the team. I, I think he's, he's going to be the primary point guard, whether he's starter in name or not. Yeah. I would, I would, I think I would tend to agree, uh, unless Ball breaks out. And if Ball breaks out, this team is crazy, right? Like, I mean, he has the year that, because I mean, if you remember, there was a lot of talk about him being like, a, like a sneaky one and done, which was always like in my head a little crazy as a like a one hundred ish recruit. But they loved him and they thought that he was a guy, and so uh, we will have to watch. But. I mean, it is nice that they don't have to really rely. I mean, they don't have, they don't have to bet on anyone exceeding what they've been in the past significantly, right? Like, alone, Quinones, Jeffries, Nolly is enough scoring. Cissé is a five-star who will bring something as a rim protector. Even if you don't get your Williams waiver, that's still, like, a clear NCAA term to, to be the start. And to, to, to kind of clear your court. For me, that's a clear top top twenty five team. I think so as well. I, I wanted to hedge my bets a little bit, but I don't think it's crazy. It's like a normal jump from everybody. You know, a a, a typical average freshman to sophomore, sophomore to junior jump for those guys. Uh, I I think clearly puts Memphis in, in a, a terrific spot there. Um, kind of moving to our next waiver here, um, a team in ETSU. Oh, this is where. They were they were built so well. They were gonna be like a thirty and three, you know, thirty win, three lost team, be like an eight seed. Right? They had all this talent coming back from last year, and then Steve Forbes takes away Forrest's job. The team gets broken up. I think they only really lose uh, Davian Williamson away Forrest and Bo Hodges to Butler. Um, maybe I'm missing somebody. Um, oh, and then a Jalen Johnson to a Wake Forest as well. Uh, yeah. But they get the the first piece back, right, where they get a waiver for Ty Brewer, one of the best sit-out transfers in the market from southeast Louisiana, to team up with, I believe, his brother, a Ladarius Brewer, who sat out last year uh, for, for, for ETSU on the wing. Um, and so presumably ETSU is still waiting on waivers for a couple of their guys, like a Cyril Smith and a David Sloan. But this it, this at least, I, I, I think, puts them... Um, Gives him another proven score, a guy in the front court. Uh, uh, um, you know, they they have uh, Patrick Good and a Ladarius Brewer in in the backcourt, and now they have this uh, proven front court player with a Ty Brewer. Um, so they're about a waiver or two away, I think, from being just as talented as the team that was broken up earlier in the offseason. Now the cohesion in the chemistry will not be as good, given that they kind of grabbed all these parts as. as as uh, transfers, but uh, ETSU 
huge missed opportunity, but they should still be very good with the waiver uh, for Brewer. I think you'd ideally get wa- a waiver for Sloan because he's a true passing point guard. You average, I think, 10 assists a game in Juco. Uh, so if you could get him a waiver, you could do Sloan, Good, Brewer, Brewer, uh, and then Silas Hickey, the grad transfer from Northern Kentucky, as your starting five. You could even go smaller if you wanted to and play Ty Brewer at the five. Um, and maybe you get like a Sorrell Smith to get that waiver. You also have Marcus Niblack, who is an Ole Miss commit, who winds up going to ETSU. Uh, I don't know much about their other freshmen. Uh, I know they grabbed a couple front court guys late um, in that regard. But, yeah, I mean, they're not as deep at this point. They were going to be so deep, uh, especially with the waivers. Without the waivers, it's hard to know how deep they're going to be. And Ladarius Brewer is a guy that they kind of need the bounce back year. You know, he had a he would have been a guy that might have gotten a high major after his freshman year at SEMO when he averaged 15 points, four rebounds, and uh, an assist and a half a game. He shot 36% from three. He was the uh, second second banana with uh, Denzel Mahoney. And then um, Mahoney leaves. They make Brewer the lead option. And Brewer really struggles, shoots 38% from the field, really sits in the market for a while. ETSU grabs him. Uh, and so... He's a good bounce-back candidate, Would has a chance to be very good. I agree with you that the chemistry is going to be a challenge in finding good point guard play, especially if they can't get a Sloan waiver, who is that you know true pass-first point guard, whereas Good's more of a shooter. Um, that will be impactful to watch. But they have a chance as much as anybody in this in this conference, right? You have a Mercer team that I think has a chance to be very interesting. You know, They had a couple guys on the transfer market, namely uh, uh, they had uh, Neftali Alvarez, who started his career at Fairfield, like a a very dynamic, uh, like shifty point guard, uh, and they also add uh, Felipe Haas, uh, former South Carolina big man, got like very good minutes at South Carolina. So Mercer could be in the mix potentially. Uh, you know, I think Wofford more in transition this year. UNCG has a terrific player. You know, Isaiah Miller back for one year, but it's still wide open at the top of this conference for the doubt. Next on our waiver list, can we do Julius? Sure, sure. We'll do David Julius, Cincinnati. Uh, I I think he probably starts at the two next to um, Amika Adams Woods. Moves Zach Harvey to a sixth man role. Um, Harvey, you know the former top fifty recruit who I reclassified last year to be to, to be a freshman early. Uh, certainly not giving up on him after a disappointing freshman year. But now, I mean, you have a a a, a veteran starting group. Right, where you're going to have a a pair or, or a, a trio of seniors, three, four, five, with Keith Williams, Rap Ivanowskis, and uh, Chris Vote. So it's not a ter- it's not a terrific fit there. But Vote was maybe the most approved player in the entire country last year. From how how little he produced to Northern Kentucky, he, he goes to a Cincinnati and has you know a a a, a really extraordinary turnaround there. Um, and then Keith Williams is just this kind of like do it all kind of gritty wing, um, who's like very tough and uh, you know he, he's probably their their, their best uh, uh, perimeter player. Um, Ivan Askes can shoot a little bit, but he's kind of an awkward fit there at the four. Maybe they end up going small, uh, but that but that backcourt now is, has been given a, ma- a a major boost. Uh, David David DeJulius uh, was a key bench player for Michigan. Played I think. North of 20 minutes a game, he can shoot. Uh, he can score a little bit. 
pairing him with Mika Adams-Woods, who played a lot this uh, past year. And uh, Cincinnati's in much better shape, a team that you really have to consider more as a tournament team than uh, prior to the waiver. Uh, last year, they were right on the cusp. Maybe they made it, maybe they hadn't. Uh, I think they're probably in a similar spot this year, despite losing uh, Jaron Cumberland. Yeah, I think one of the big things with this addition is just that it gives them a guy that you trust to get a bucket, right? Like, Vote's a good post player, but I really wouldn't want him to be my best scorer. Keith Williams is a guy that I would not want to be my best scorer. Like, I, I think of him as, again, like a third third option glue guy, you know, really defends, can rebound, um, you know, play around the rim, uh, you know, maybe hit a shot or two, but I don't think he's a, you know, a 20 point, you know, 16, 18 point a game guy. I don't think to Julius is either, but it gives you a second guy who can do stuff like that. Uh, and it also gives them enough backcourt depth to be, you know, even more comfortable with some of those smaller lineups. Um, you mentioned the idea of playing Ivanovsky some at the five. You could definitely do that. I think he will struggle with um, high major physicality. Uh, it's just going to be imperative that he hits hit shots better. You know, he really struggled shooting the ball this past year at Colgate after really sniping uh, the previous year. Uh, and so that will be really critical to his minutes for the Cincinnati team. But I could definitely see a scenario where you played, you know, Adams Woods into Julius or even Mike Saunders uh, from Wasatch Academy, who I watched earlier this summer and I really like, you know, two of those three point guards and then Williams and maybe Zach Harvey or uh, Gabe Madsen, who is a, a pretty solid recruit as well, maybe getting some minutes as a shooter. Uh, so playing three or four guards around one big four around one. Right. And then a, a lot of people in, in the front court really like uh, Tari Eason, who I believe was a top 150 power forward. He'll be a freshman, and then they are also bringing back an athletic big in, uh, Mamadou Diara, uh, to back up Chris Vogt. Um, the, the Americans slowly but surely are rounding, rounding into form, right? We got waivers for Nolly, and uh, did Julius really improve the standing of, of Cincy and Memphis? Yeah, Houston at the top waiting on a waiver for, for Reggie Chaney, right? And then uh, uh, Wichita shouldn't be bad. Uh, uh, Central Florida's looking up a little bit. So a uh, pretty interesting year in the first year post-UConn American. Should we stay there briefly for the Gabe Watson Tulane waiver? Two weeks in a row talking Tulane on the podcast. Sure, yeah. So Tulane now gets their third waiver of the offseason. Uh, again, I think maybe their ceiling here is ninth place, but they're going to be a lot better. You know, maybe they won't finish in last this year. Uh, so now they got a waiver for Watson, who could maybe be their leading scorer. Uh, then you got Jalen Forbes from Alabama on the wing. You got Kevin Cross in the front court, and then uh, Seton Hall transfer Jordan Walker at at the point. And you know, building with a transfer is certainly the way to go for a, for Tulane. But, you know, like I said at the start, I think their, their ceiling is probably ninth, maybe eighth, right? You got East Carolina, they can certainly be better than. Temple, they could be better than. Temple's roster's been gutted. Um, and then I guess maybe you could argue Tulsa, but these Tulane and, and uh, East Carolina especially, they were so, you know, they, they're starting from such a bad spot. Like, I think East Carolina was sub-200 sub in Kempom last year. I think Tulane was... In the mid 100s, so you know they have a they have a long way to go to jump some of these teams. 
teams that finish around 100 or 75. Yeah, you know, if only uh, Tayshawn Hightower hadn't murdered someone, they'd be in a they'd be in better shape. You know, or or he would have left for the NBA draft anyway. So maybe, but yeah. hey, I mean, in theory, Tayshawn Hightower, Gabe Watson, Jalen Forbes, backcourt trio, maybe get a waiver for Otan Jankovic from Vanderbilt. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking here, man, but unfortunately things did not go that way. Watson is good, though. Walker is steady. It gives him a shot, right? I mean, Watson and Forbes, I think, will be you know, very competent American players. We know Walker is. I think Cross should be fine at that level. Noble Days gave him some minutes to freshman. So, it's again, it, the, the challenge with, with, with every you know gut job, the way this is, is how do you put a competitive product on the floor in the short term without putting yourself in a position where, you know, you can't build something in the long term, right? And that's, I think, the big challenge is, you know, theoretically, Tulane could try to recruit a bunch of, like, three-star freshmen and develop them so when they're juniors and seniors, they're they're a solid team. But at the same time, if you miss on those, then you're resigned to, like, four years of 8 and 22. Whereas you can go this route and say, okay, we're going to transfer heavy, and maybe last year was better than expected. Certainly, certainly was, but it still was bad. And then you lose your best player, Tayshaun Hightower, from that team, albeit not for normal circumstances. You lose um, pretty much the entire group. I mean, you lost Thompson from Rhode Island. You lost uh, K.J. Lawson, who gave them great minutes. So now you have to rebuild it again. It's great that you've got another group of these guys, and at least in this group there will be no seniors. But it doesn't take much to, like you know, for, for it to fall apart. And I think the hope would be that this group, the Watson, Forbes, Cross, Jankovic, Noble Days, core can be the nucleus to a group that wins the following year once they add another wave of transfers. But this is the challenge when you're, when you're building from the ground up. And, and like you said, Brad, when you're starting at that 200 place, it's just, it's just monumentally more difficult. And, you know, these guys... Right, Forbes really didn't play much at Alabama. Jordan Walker didn't play much at Seton Hall. Kevin Cross played a lot, but wasn't great at Nebraska. Um, Ibi Ali at, at at Arkansas didn't do anything, and I don't I don't think he did much last year either. So like they're getting transfers, but they're 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 really going to need some of these guys to hit. Right, Watson was at least productive at at, at Southern Miss, but they're going to need these Forbes Cross types. Um, to perform at a level that they haven't yet, which which they could, but it's not like we're adding sure things here. You know, we're not adding Nigel Williams Goss or uh, DJ Glosson or transfers like that here. Yeah, agreed, hundred percent. Should uh, should we move on to uh, Colin Castleton? I love that you 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 made that joke. What joke? Colin Castleton. That's how Goodman tweeted it. Isn't that his name? Isn't it just Castleton? Is it actually spelled differently? So I had spelled it like Castle and then Ton. Yeah. Goodman spelled it Cast... He spelled Castell. So instead of Castleton, it was Castleton. And I thought you were making fun of Goodman. I mean, we we go with obscure jokes, obscure <laughs> college 
basketball jokes all the time that only you and I care about. But flipping two letters on this, in, on this one. in a backup center's last name, that's that's way beyond even us there. It is. Well, that was what I was surprised by. I was surprised you had picked up on it. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. But fortunately not. But now, 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 I, now I, I have no idea how to pronounce his name. Uh, Castleton. Okay, Colin Castleton. Going back home to Florida. I think he was a three-star recruit. Maybe he was a four-star recruit at a Michigan. But never really carved out a role. Uh, Austin Davis beat him out, which I think surprised a lot of people. Uh, so now he's off to Florida where he'll split the, the center minutes with Omar Payne. I think Payne's on the better end of that um, better end of that duo. It's a spot that they didn't really... I mean, it's like a nice upgrade and all, but they didn't really need a player like Castleton. They had Osaye Osifo uh, from uh, Juco, who's a very highly rated Juco player. Um, they had like a bigger physical center in Jason Jatobo, who played a tad as a freshman and played a little bit. Um, and, and they can also go small sliding. Louisiana Tech transfer Anthony Deruji down to the five next to Keon, uh, Keontae Johnson and, and, and uh, Scotty Lewis, in which would be a super athletic and versatile uh, kind of front court trio there, three, four, five. Uh, but but Castleton will, will play. I think he's probably better as a junior than Osifo is coming out of Juco. Um, so, so that's a nice win, win around the margins. You know, I, I'm just not expecting more than like three or four points a game from him. So the interesting thing with Castleton was for a while he was playing, you know, really big minutes for, for Michigan as the backup center. Um, and then they, they kind of booted him from the rotation in favor of Austin Davis, who wound up giving them very good minutes. Um, but I never didn't believe that he could help someone. I thought it was weird he was going to Florida where he had no chance of starting this year. But or next year. Yeah. Well, theoretically, he could if Omar Payne goes pro. Right. But, yes. I mean, you're, you're correct that Osafio makes things a little less obvious because Osafio would be that. He could, I think of him as like a true four, um, not necessarily a five man. But what the waiver does for Castleton is it certainly means that you could have a traditional five-man rotation um, where you give Payne maybe 25 minutes a game, Castleton 15 or 10, and then you go with that five-minute small ball lineup, which I do like quite a bit, with either Osafio or um, Deruji or even Johnson as your small ball five. I guess it doesn't really matter what you define it as. But it will be very interesting to see how they look to build out this rotation. It's a much different team. Now they won't have Nembhard running the show. Uh, will, will the offense remain the same with maybe Tyree Appleby or Jacquez Glover or Trey Mann running point? Or will this team kind of uh, shift its identity um, when they played so slow in the recent years? Right. For me, this uh, Florida team is super talented. They're super deep. The, the one real question is, is at that point guard spot, right? Because you got Omar Payne's going to be a great five man. Um, He's really good around the rim, really bouncy, really energetic. Top 50 recruit, right, as a sophomore. Uh, Keontae Johnson was fantastic last year at the four. Scotty Lewis is a former top 10, top 15 recruit. As a sophomore, he'll uh, take a big jump. Um, he was fine last year. It was just based on expectation. Uh, he was woefully short. And then no 
Olak can 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 really shoot it there at the two. He'll be an experienced player for them as a junior. It's just going to come down to, you know, like like you mentioned, you got Glover who was surprisingly good last year. You have Trey Mann who was a little disappointing. I think some people had him as a sneaky one and done. Uh, can can he slide in there and give you point guard minutes, even though? Uh, decision making was his main question mark last year, and then you have Appleby, the transfer from Cleveland State. Um, so, so really, you can go one of three ways. It's a pretty good problem to have because because he, these are three pretty good options. Uh, Glover didn't play a ton of point guard last year, but he was a rotation guy, hit some shots off the bench. Um, so that that winner of that point guard battle is going to really determine whether this Florida team's like a top ten team or like a top seven, eight team, or if this team's going to be, be back in that eight, nine range like they were this past year. Yeah. And uh, Florida was worse than the, uh, than some of its parts. I think it's fair to say. Absolutely. In 2019, 20, we'll see if they can fix that in 2021. Next waiver I've got for you. Bryce Williams gets one going from Ole Miss to Miss uh, Oklahoma state. This is an interesting addition. I think the biggest thing that Williams will provide is a shooter. He made 44% of his threes on limited shots this season for the Rebels. Um, former Juco product, he's, instead of sit one, play one, he plays immediately. Uh, certainly not a bad ad. I don't know if he starts, but if you were looking to round out a rotation, it certainly decreases the pressure on someone like Rondale Walker uh, to, to give you minutes. And an Avery Anderson type as well, who didn't do much as a freshman. Um, we, we've, we've had our conversation about this team, and obviously a significant question that we have to deal with with them is simply just, you know, are they going to be instantly tournament eligible? But uh, a nice waiver for a guy who might help you in the rotation on around the margins, and maybe not. But the more I look at this, I think Williams starts. I think you got Likely's a lock, right? Cunningham and Boone are locks. And then I think you go with your two veterans, your two senior shooters, and Farron Flavors and Bryce Williams, giving Cade Cunningham even more space, you know, even more weapons to operate with. So, especially when when you consider that likely he's not a shooter, and I think Boone's more of an energy guy. I'm not sure if he has any shooting potential there. Um, but this makes their offense even that more dynamic. Maybe Avery Anderson uh, can give you a spark as like a six man score. The bench is truly up for grabs. I mean, it's no one is proven, right? You have a couple really highly touted freshmen. You mentioned Rondell Walker, and then the comp forward Matthew Alexander Moncrief um, and then on, on the wing you have three former top 150 recruits two sophomores in Chris Harris and Avery Anderson and then a freshman Donovan Williams so I mean they have incredible amount of options right they have um, th- th- this whole bench you can make an argument you know for everyone to be in the rotation uh, so it's gonna be really interesting to to see the three or four bench guys that are able to kind of um, separate themselves I'm thinking Alexander Moncrief, Avery Anderson, and and uh, Rondell Walker, and then with uh, Bernard Kuma as that four man, as as that five man rather. Yeah, no, I I agree with that hundred um, percent. I will say it is interesting that Cade wasn't ever able to get like a true elite recruit, and in some ways I think it's better that he didn't like load up like a one and done group because. Now you have a bunch of like st- good recruits that will be around for a long time. Like even once Kate graduates, they'll still have a senior year team, uh, or, or a senior year Isaac Likely team. They'll have Likely 
um, you know, some former good recruits who might break out at some point in um, Anderson and Harris, Donovan Williams, top 150 guy, Alexander Moncrief, top 150 guy, Rondell Walker, top 150 guy. You could probably add another or two in 2021. And then you have the Boone brothers up front. Like, they did a nice job with that. It's just surprising they didn't pull at least one other, you know, top 50 type. Right. Like, uh, Jariah Horn was one that I was very surprised on. Uh, same with Jalen Johnson, who's off the Mississippi State. Uh, Jariah Horn off off to Colorado. I, I thought he would have been a really good fit to play that kind of stretch four spot and slide Cunningham up to the three. But, you know, they got a, two very good shooters uh, who don't, who don't need the ball in their hands to play next to Cade and, and uh, likely. So that's a, a pretty interesting offense there. I think the next kind of most important one would be uh, Malik Martin for a URI. They, we yeah, touched on this on, on last week's podcast, but the, the, the one thing that they were missing was like a big physical wing that could slide down and play some four, but was like a natural three. You know, he can give them some uh, defense. He can give them some size next to Fats Russell and uh, probably Jeremy Shepard, I guess, in, in the backcourt because uh, you'll need Shepard shooting in there. Um, and then I, I think this, this moves Jalen Carey to be like a great sixth man for them. And you know, suddenly URI has as, as much talent as anyone in the whole, uh, whole A-10. Um, still probably would take Richmond to win it, but you could make a case now with all all these pieces that a URI has, and you know, maybe a jump from like a Jermaine Harris type puts them uh, right there in tournament contention. Yeah, I, I would agree, and I think I've always been a huge fan of Martin's game. I've been a fan of that archetype too, right? He's six six. He's got good size physically as well. Uh, he takes like half his shots from three, and he makes them in a thirty eight percent clip this season. He's very efficient from two. He shot 56% on two-point shots this year. Uh, he rebounds fine for the position. He averaged almost two steals a game this year. I get they were playing in a pack line system that they might inflate that number a little bit, but he's a very legitimate defender as well. And so um, I just think that type of, of piece, who's not going to expect to get 10 shots, 12 shots a game, that's just so valuable especially on a team that already has a Fats Russell, that already has, I would imagine the Mitchell Twins are going to want, want shots, that already has, like you mentioned, Jeremy Shepard and Jalen Carey, who are going to want shots. To have a guy you can plug in to play the three, play a little bit of four potentially in smaller lineups, hit some outside shots, willing to buy in defensively, I think that's so huge. It does kind of make the path for someone like Trez Berry a much harder to, to fill, fill the role. I think they were thinking maybe he would wind up doing that at six foot four with really long arms, kind of a physical guard who could play multiple positions. Um, but regardless, uh, a really nice ad, uh, especially with the waiver. And I think the last waiver that I have is Isaiah Wilkins going from Virginia Tech to Wake Forest, staying in conference. And now he was a rotation player. Maybe both years at Virginia Tech, but most notably on their very good Sweet 16 team two years ago, uh, a team with Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Justin Robinson and uh, Kerry Blackshear. He was a rotation guy on that team. He's like a like a stocky, like six four wing uh, who's billed as a shooter. Um, so that experience going to Wake Forest, you know, 
one of the more rebuilding power six teams in, in the country. I mean, that's that's going to be huge. I don't even know if he starts, though. Um, right, because you have Ian DeBose, you have Jalen Johnson, you have Jonah Antonio. So he might not even play that much more than he did at uh, Virginia Tech as a freshman sophomore, but I I think he will be in the rotation. We'll give them like a veteran presence. Um, I, I I think Wake Forest is probably still waiting on a waiver for Davian Williamson, which they'll probably get. Um, it, in uh, which case he'll be even kind of further behind the eight ball there. But uh, Wake Forest made a couple decent pickups where their transfers that will kind of give them a little more juice, but not really cannibalize like the 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 uh, progression for for younger players like no no 2021 freshman is going to say oh i i can't commit to wake forest because of isaiah wilkins and uh, davian davian williamson yeah and I, I will say i mean if if you're if your calculus of whether you should pursue a waiver for a kid is essentially, do we want him in our roster as a redshirt senior more than we want him now? If you're Wake Forest, the answer is you'd rather him now, right? And so it's the easy answer. You hope that you're not playing a guy like Wilkins, unless he really, really blossoms. You'd hope that a guy uh, in, in his archetype is not, is not your significant use player as a, a redshirt senior in three years of, in year three of the, uh, the Steve Forbes era. Um, it's never good when you're, when you're an ACC team taking a kid who from another comparable ACC team openly says he got run off. But, you know, I think for Wake, like, again, any able body is, is a good body for them, right? It's a guy who gives you, gives you a roll of dice, maybe keeps you relevant more. And, and there is a difference between 8 and 12 wins in recruiting. And that's, that's kind of what you're doing. And you're hoping that in 2021 you can continue to build. I know they already have um, – they have one commit in their backcourt already in that class, and Robert McRae, who's a, a three-star kid. Um, maybe they can pull a couple others. Uh, I know they, they try to get it on Carter Witt. I think they'll probably miss there, but um, worth a shot. Um, but they're going to cast a wide net. Steve Ford's a terrific coach, terrific talent evaluator, and I think they'll get there. But uh, it's, it's kind of a stopgap mode for now. And then just the last transfer to touch on is Howard Washington. Uh, no, Kevin broke the news. He's going to South South Alabama. Two-year grad transfer. Um, obviously, South Carol or South Alabama lost uh, Dachin Burke before they really even had him. You know, he went pro early. Um, so I guess Washington kind of slides into that role. He's not the score that Burke is, but he should, he should be like a solid glue guy guard who, going down a level, um, could maybe approach double-figure scoring. Yeah, it's worth a shot for them, right? And um, I know I know Richie Riley's really excited about the group that they have, and yeah, he he might not even be a huge impact guy, especially if, so if they get the waiver for Michael Flowers um, from Western Michigan. You know, he'll start a point guard. They have a terrific, terrific JUCO player coming in, and David Walker, who I think is probably better than Washington right now, just like straight up. Uh, they have Sam Iorio. Uh, coming in as well, who's sh- a really good shooter from American. So they have pieces, without a doubt. But Washington gives them a little more flexibility in the backcourt. He can play the one or the two. He's really dealt with a lot of injuries. He had even had a stroke, which is really scary. I'm glad he's doing all, all right. And so 
you know, he's going to be eligible, I would expect, right away. I don't think he's technically a grad, um, but he is going to have two years of eligibility and likely play right away. Uh, and a, a nice move for South Alabama and a nice scoop for Cap. So. And so then they, they, they also added another Juco player this weekend. But yes, they did. My, my big question with all this Juco stuff, right, is it seems like guys aren't going to redshirt, right? Because normally, all right, you're, you're a Juco player, right? It's because either your grades weren't good enough or you didn't get the recruiting attention that you wanted. So the players who didn't get the recruiting attention that they wanted but their grades are fine, they can leave Juco after one year. For the people whose grades weren't okay, after one year, if you're being recruited by high major schools before the season starts, you should redshirt at junior college, and you'll have three years to play at the high major school. Right? So guys like Michael Thomas is going to Houston. Um, I know uh, Suleiman Dumbia, who, who has a final eight list of all power schools, right? These, or, or, or even someone who commits to South, Al- South Alabama this early, right? Once, once you make the decision, there's no reason to waste that year playing JUCO, right? You're going to be bussing around. It's going to be worse competition. You don't need to play it to get more recruitment. Like you could get hurt and your scholarship gets pulled. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't you want that third year at the four-year school that you chose? I think theoretically, I'll, I'll probably reach out to a few people around and ask this question um, because it is, a, it is a worthwhile one. I think one of the arguments, especially for someone like Marshall Keering, the guy that they got, and I know um, their staff is very high on him. They, I watched a little tape. He's 6'9". He's athletic. He block, block shot. Had a really good first-year Juco. Like the idea for, for that guy is like you don't need a year off. And so are you going to stay in, in Juco and just practice and develop that way but not play games? And, I mean, not many guys like redshirting. So I, I get your point. I think there's validity to it. Um, but I think that my guess, the, the reasoning why essentially guys don't enjoy redshirting and it's important for development purposes to get more game action. So is, is it more important to get more Juco game action than it would be so let's say not practice hard for a year, right? Like you kind of don't, don't take it seriously. There's no kind of buy-in from, from the JUCO coach because you're leaving anyway or whatever. But then have three years with your high major or with your uh, four-year school team. Right. No, I get it. I get it 100%. So, yeah, so that's, that's, that's one major question I have because I know guys like uh, Dejan Giroux did that. Uh, and at Bryson Gresham, they did UMass for a year and then JUCO for a year where they redshirted and then had three years at Houston. Um, which, which certainly seems like the move when, when you're already being recruited at that level. Yeah, that is, that is a fair point, especially at that highest level, doing the, uh, the Bryson Gresham to Jean Jerome. Should we move on to some... Uh, 2021. Uh, we do have one more commit before we before we do the 2021s. Quick, we can do it very quickly. Zane Martin. Oh, that's right. Love to see it. He's back. back at Towson. He I mean, 20 at Towson. That, that's a significant act. 
How many how many mid majors have added a twenty point per game mid major score in the last like four weeks or last whole whole off season? Right, I mean, it's very rare. Right, and I just love I I know that you do too, Kevin. Just these like little recruiting quirks like this. Yes, kind of weird stories. Guys like Valdi Manuel who are on their fifth spot, or guys like Zane Martin who who are coming back, right? Because um, we had a list going on Twitter, a few people chipping in of, of guys who've done the uh, return trip, right? I, I had forgotten Jimmy Witt, um, who went, what, Arkansas, SMU, Arkansas. Uh, Octavius Ellis is always the first one who comes to mind for me because he was, like, not even in the rotation on Cincinnati, goes to Juco. He comes back and is one of Cincinnati's, like, most important players as, like, this rim-protecting five-man. Um, Akoya Gows, and I mean, he was all over. Right? He was Louisville, Georgetown, SMU, Louisville. I think. Um, it might have been SMU, Georgetown, Louisville. I I, I feel like it was Georgetown, SMU, Louisville, but um, he he was someone where where injuries really took took the juice out of him because um, he, he he was like a top seventy five recruit. I think he had knee issues that kind of held him back. Um, and now, and now we have Zane Martin, who's you know, you know these guys are, are pretty notable players. Um, oh, and then uh, Jake Jake Toulson went BYU, Utah Valley, BYU as well. So uh, Michael oh, Gilmore, VCU, Miami, Florida Gulf Coast, VCU. And I feel like that there was a player who did Ole Miss, South Carolina, Ole Miss. I was Someone trying to Google it. Me on Twitter. I was I was trying to Google it. I think it was Murphy Holloway, but he never actually played at South Carolina. But I'm, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. My memory. Well, Sienna had JV on Okanyemi, who had a good sophomore year at Sienna, averaged ten and five, and then transferred to Boston University because he wanted to get out of town for the first time in life because he was from like right next door to Sienna. He wanted to like get out of town because he had like lost his mom during the recruiting process, and that was why he wanted to stay at home. Now he wanted to try something new, and so he goes to BU, spends the summer there. While the summer happens, his cousin gets murdered, and so he decides he wants to come back to Albany to be closer to family at home, and uh, goes back to Siena, gets the waiver, plays right away, has a really nice career for the Saints. So uh, hopefully we have some more. Some more situations like this, these kind of fun quirks that we can discuss. Yeah, hopefully, I think there's, man, like maybe 10 people actually care about this shit, but we're two of them, so. Yeah. Here. And so it gets discussed, right? <laughs> all it takes is two. Really, all it takes is one, as uh, we saw with the uh, Colin Castleton uh, last name spelling. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, what else we got? Um, recruits. Brandon Weston. So Seton Hall is, you know, really recruiting well. Um, you you would think maybe with with the lack of an NCAA tournament, maybe it was their 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 big jump this year was out of sight, out of mind. But it, it feels like recruits are really taking notice about how guys like Romero Gill and Jared Roden and um, Quincy McKnight and all these guys have really improved recently. Uh, Sandra Mamakillos really as well. Uh, recruits are taking notice, and they get their third top 150 recruit. This is their their highest recruit here with top 75 Brandon Weston. 
He's big for a wing at, at like 6'6". He's athletic. Um, he can really defend. He's not a great shooter, uh, but he, he rebounds. He, he can score uh, with, with his size and attacking the basket. So you get a player like him uh, who, who has a major upside uh, to be a Big East double-figure scorer and eventually be Seton Hall's best player when, when he's an upperclassman. You're pairing him with other freshmen in uh, Ryan Conway, who's like a scoring point guard, and Tyler Powell, who's a 3-and-D wing. Um, so, so the fit there with that freshman class is looking really strong. And I think Seton Hall is probably going to close with a Juco big man and then hold that last spot for a uh, grad transfer point guard after the season. And they've built another really strong team where, where they're consistently having you know, three or four guys per, per class. So they have this great class balance. Guys are waiting their turn. Then they're playing and they're, and they're just cycling through. Uh, that's that's kind of the model that they've built right now. Where after this year they'll lose Aiken, they'll lose Kale, they'll lose Sandro Mamakilashvili from the starting lineup, and they'll lose Shavar Reynolds as the sixth man. Uh, but then you'll have Molson and Roden back, and then you just elevate Tyree Samuel and Ike Obiago to the starting lineup, and then add a grad transfer, and you just keep that train rolling. Yeah. My quick thoughts on Weston. Uh, I actually saw him last summer briefly at the NCAA Basketball Academy. I think I only saw him play for a half. But I remember watching him and saying, like, why did this kid get high major offers in the last month? Like, he was just very – there was nothing he did that was overly exciting. And I think I was just expecting that. Like, when I watched Zed Key, he was dominant. And I just didn't see that um, with Weston. So for him to be a top 75 is a little surprising to me, just as, like, a – neutral onlooker um again small sample size and i've watched a little tape and like i kind of get the appeal as again like a 6-6 do it all wing but he just didn't have one pop skill i do think that's a concern but also i mean guys right so he was playing against a lot of 2020 recruits there right at least you know guys yeah. like zed key were there um that's Mostly something with major guys though i thought okay but that was something like, well, we're watching AAU. Age really matters. Yeah. Right. Like I, I remember watching Mass Rivals the year that their, that their starting backcourt was uh, Wabisa Beatty and uh, Makayash and Langford. And then their, their reserve backcourt was A.J. Reeves and David Duke. And when, when Duke and Reeves came in, they were both horrible. I was like, oh, my God, like, these guys suck. And, th- and uh, these are the guys who Providence wants. Like, come on. And then you literally just. Fast forward, not even a, a year, and or, or maybe two years, and they're already better than Ashton Langford and uh, Wabisa Beatty. So it's 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 crazy how much age age plays a part there, and and how good some of these analysts are at kind of piecing through. Okay, who's bad because they're young, and who's bad because they're bad? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Where else in the recruiting world, Brad? Uh, Tamar Bates, top 100 yes. combo guard or wing going to Texas. Gives him a scoring pop. Future backcourt sharing with 6'5", kind of do-it-all guard, E. Marion Ellis. Um, so Texas is going to be... They have one spot left, it looks like, and they're, they're, they're swinging for five-star big. Damian Collins, which it doesn't look like they'll get. Uh, but... But as long as they're kind of Kai Jones, Will Baker, those guys can 
take steps forward. That a twenty that twenty one twenty two front court should be solid, um, and they've done the necessary additions in the backcourt with Ellison Bates, who can take over when Andrew Jones and Courtney Ramey graduate. Yes, and I I think Bates is a guy that will be a nice you know two three potentially even four year guy uh, for Texas. He's top one hundred kid. He can really score the ball. Um, I know Northwestern loved, loved, loved this kid uh, at one point and kind of went separate ways once they took so many guards early in the process. But, uh, you know, you think he could be a guy somewhat in the similar mold to an Andrew Jones, you know, a bigger guard who can play the point, can play, play off the ball. Um, I, I really like this fit of Texas, and I think Texas has done a nice job in the last several weeks of going after some of these you know, very good multi-year level guys. And I think for Shaka, I think that strategy has always made sense more than the one and done. Right, because you you look at that 21-22 roster and they could have a starting lineup of all top 75 former recruits. Right, you're saying, okay, you got Ramey and Jones, experienced, productive guys in the backcourt. You have Donovan Williams, who was a top 75 recruit, who was a rotation guy last year. He would be a junior. And you have... Kai Jones and Will Baker in the front court. Um, you would have other guys who'd be experienced coming off the bench, and then you're able to get uh, program guys, guys who are in a specific mold. Right? You have David Joplin, who's a top 150 now, who's like an undersized scoring forward. You mentioned Bates as a scoring guard. Ellis is a big kind of do-it-all, a multi-positional guard who can play some point. And then Kian Edejer, uh, who's a like an athletic kind of roll of a dice guy who like you, you may have seen at Shaka's VCU teams. Um, so it looks like they're heading in the right direction and you know, Shaka is going to need a big year this year uh, to kind of springboard that going forward and, and uh, being able to truly uh, kind of realize the gains of, of this strategy. Yeah. 100% agree. Where else we go, Brad? Um, how does Ole Miss recruit this well? It is very confusing, especially with the crystal ball hovering for uh, Brent Huntley Hatfield. I saw that too. As, and he, he would reclass as well. So he would be part of this 2021 class. I mean, I just can't wrap my head around it. You know, this is a team that was not recruiting that well with Andy Kennedy, who was a good coach. They the hired Kermit Davis, who was a mid-major coach. Coach, albeit one of the best, but still, right? This isn't like some big Jeff Capel assistant or like a Ben Howland type right, who went to Final Fours. You know, they get Kermit Davis, and recruiting just takes off. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it has to do with the specific assistants they got. I, I don't know off the top of my head who they are and what their specialty is, right? But they get Matthew Merrill in, in the 2020 class. They get two of the best grad transfers out there with Demencio Vaughn and Romello White. They get one of the best Juco guys last year in uh, Kadeem Sai. And now this year, they've already gotten Deshaun Ruffin, top 50 point guard. James White on the wing, top 100 score shooter tight. And they might get Brandon Hudley-Hatfield, top 10 recruit, one and done type at the four. I just can't wrap my head around it. 
Yeah, I mean, we were texting about this, and, like, you're correct in that it makes, like, very little sense. The idea that Ole Miss is going to get kids at this level, right? Like, consistently. Because there is no pedigree here. The facilities are good, but they're not ridiculous. And the biggest thing is, like, my my feel, feeling would be, like, Ole Miss would have a recruiting pitch of, like, come to a football game and see the campus. Like, they're not even doing this right now, right? Like, they're not they're, – they don't have the luxury of just being, like, hey, come come to a game at Vaught-Hemingway, which is an awesome place to play, watch football, and they have an awesome tailgate scene, and, like, it's a super cool, you know, selling point. But, like, they are, they are, they are going into rooms and battling it out with really, really good teams for top 150, top 50, and even potentially a five-star kid uh, in Hundley Hatfield. So uh, it is it's stunning to me, 100%. Uh, I don't understand it. I am impressed. I think if you remember, I mean, the whole deal when Andy Kennedy, the, the, the Andy Kennedy stands were, were against this hire. Because they said, well, what's the point? Because you told us that you wanted a guy who could recruit. Kermit's a great coach, but he's just like Andy Kennedy. He's not going to recruit at this high level. And he has uh, certainly proved me wrong, many others wrong as well. Absolutely. Another one that's kind of a head-scratcher. So we get Eric Reynolds going to St. Joe's. He's top 150 composite, but... 24-7 24-7 has him as a as the 70th ranked player, I believe. So St. Joe's, despite being horrible last year, new coach, their rebuild wasn't taking great shape. Suddenly they're you know pulling a former top 100 recruit as you know with a Damir Bishop, which is okay, wants to go closer to home. Now now they get this this great recruit who pretty much only had A-10, uh, A-10 actionable offers. Is this just, you know, St. Joe's won the lottery in terms of they found a guy who was second fiddle at a bunch of other places, but first fiddle there and, and close to home, they were able to get him? You know, was it that type of recruiting battle? Or, or do you think that St. Joe's is back on the up and up and, and you know, th- they can be as good as they were when they had, you know, DeAndre Bembry and Langston Galloway. Like, are, are we three, four years away from from St. Joe's being back? So what's funny about it is, like, do you remember the, like, actually St. Joe's is good thing that we all did in, like, late November when they kept playing close games in their, their turn? They beat UConn, and then they played Florida close, and Ryan Daly was getting, like, 30 a game. And you were like, holy hell, this is fun. Billy Lang's a genius. And I... I I never fell for it, so pat, I'm uh, patting myself on the back right now. Wow, love that for you. <laughs> but regardless, right? Like they've done a nice job with Demir Bishop. I think Greg Foster will help them. Obviously, going to lose daily, but like they've built some younger, they've gotten some younger guys, good recruits. Reynolds, the latest one. My guess is, I think he's probably in the same tier as like Brayon Freeman, who went to. Sure. Where like, like, because the difference between Reynolds and Freeman is one like really inflated twenty four seven ranking, right? Because twenty four seven has top seventy five, I believe. And like no one else would have him like anywhere, right? 
Right. Well, they have yeah. They, so so, my guess is he's really like a three star kid. That St. Joe's staff is telling everyone is a four star kid because there's a ranking that says that, and they're all tweeting it out like, oh my god, big get for Billy Lang. You know, it's just it's a big get, right? Without a doubt, and they need guys like this consistently uh, if they're gonna you know really climb the ladder. And it's a, it's a it's a heck of a start, but I'm not I'm not gonna like run around with my you know hands in the air screaming that St. Joe's is back. I I will say though the last guy who I can remember having like that big of a discrepancy on 24-7 versus the composite was Myronian Jones. Uh-huh. Like 24-7 had him at, at one point as like a top 50 player and everyone else had him as like 200. And I think I mean obviously he had a great sophomore year at uh, Penn State and, and we'll see how he does as a junior now without Lamar Stevens and those guys there but um Feels like when one ranking system has a player who's an outlier like that, a lot of times they can be on to something. Yes. That's something that maybe we should go through sometime is like weird outliers. I think we could really only do it with... I mean, it, it would be easiest with a 24-7 because they would have their ranking with the composite right under but you know, maybe this week I'll, I'll look for some other weird discrepancies like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with that is just so many of the discrepancies are based on international. Right. Or, or like guys are do, doing a reclass like a cook cook did. Right, guys who never get ever, like, properly rated. So I would be interested in that, though, for sure. Any other recruits that we should be mentioning before we wrap up this once again hour and a half long episode of the pod? We have a couple more. Uh, how about uh, Malachi Smith to Dayton, brother of Scoochie Smith? Yep. He's off to Dayton to be their point guard of the future. Uh, the Flyers still need some, some uh, front court players. Uh, but their 21-22 team starting to fill out. You'll have Elijah Weaver as pro- probably the best player um, Dwayne Cohill, as I believe a senior, should share the backcourt with him. And then you're just going to need some of these guys who they have filling out the bench this year uh, to step up. You, know, you, you need one or two of, you know, like RJ Blakeney, Kobe Bree, you know, two or three of those guys. Uh, uh, you know, one, one needs to be a starter, the rest kind of need to be competent bench players. And a Dayton would be in pretty good shape. I think they still need to add a couple more bigs. Uh, to this team. Uh, but overall, not bad. And then I think this 2021 team coming up certainly has NCAA tournament aspirations. Uh, Jalen Crutcher could really take the next step for them. Uh, they're going to miss Obi Toppin's versatility, uh, but they'll have a bigger, more more physical front court with Chase Johnson and Jordy Chimanga, who are b- both looking for kind of bigger performances with new New roles, bigger opportunity. Yeah, I think the big thing I like about this is I know they're planning to use Elijah Weaver at point guard. That's one of the big reasons why they're not getting him a waiver is that they want to transition from Crutcher to Weaver. And then Weaver will be the hand it down to Malachi Smith. Right. Which is a really nice kind of progression long-term of the position. And they've been good at point guard forever, right? I mean, that's kind of how Dayton's been all the way back to Scoochie and even before him. 
Um, but I think Malachi is a really nice get for them. That's the level of kid that Anthony Grant should be pulling, especially with a family connection after a year like this. Uh, it's a really nice pickup for Dayton. A little Missouri, who had a, a million open spots. Their roster starting to take shape. They get top 250 wing in a Sean Dora Gordon, who, who felt like a lot of people really liked. He's like a physical kind of 3-4 type who probably played a 3 for them. And then they get Caleb Brown, who's a 6-6, like, do-it-all guard. Um, maybe play some point. You know, probably play one through four at his size there. Um, he He's the brother – you know, speaking of family connections, he's the brother of starting power forward Kobe Brown. Um, so Missouri has done pretty well to build up their roster. They still need one or two more bigs because right now the only real big is Jordan Willimore, who 7'4", about 300 pounds. Eventually he'll be a tr- terrific anchor, but I think as a sophomore you don't want him as, as your starting center. But I, I, I still think that the talent level is going to be an issue for Missouri. The team's not going to be bad this year, but I don't see them making the tournament this year. And then this, you know, going forward, just not enough high-level talent to to compete in this uh, recruiting-rich SEC with Ole Miss pulling all these guys. Um, Vanderbilt's recruitment, uh, uh, Vanderbilt's recruitment is looking up as well. Um, I just think it's just not going to be enough there for Missouri. Right. Well, I'm just surprised that. Conzo isn't doing a better job on the on the trail, right? Like you would have thought that, you know, he's a you know he's a very um, I'm trying to think of the right right word. He connects like he he's a guy that if you listen to him speak, you're immediately you immediately gravitate towards him. And I feel like in the environment that the SEC is in recruiting right now, they would have been able to do a better job in the last three classes than. Kobe Brown, Mario McKinney, Trey Jackson, Jordan Wilmore, Sean Drew Gordon, Caleb Brown, and Anton Brookshire. Mario McKinney's gone too, right? Right, and so is Trey Jackson. Yeah. But, like, I mean, they haven't they haven't recruited in a year, and like since Michael Porter, they haven't recruited. Like, that's concerning. Right, and you know, it's I will never be able to wrap my. I mean, you have. Quanto Martin, right? Forget about all the wins and losses, the NCAA tournaments and everything, right? He he's coached Jalen Brown, Ivan Rab, uh, Jordan Matthews, Jabari Bird, Tyrone Wallace, Michael Porter, Jonte Porter, Jarnell Stokes, Josh Richardson, Jordan McRae. All these guys, <laughs> and he, he can't get more than three-star recruit. Like, how how aren't guys lining up to play? Like, oh oh, you coach Jalen Brown and all these NBA players, Michael Porter. Well, yes, the easy argument is that he did a crappy job with both Jalen Brown and Michael Porter, but <laughs> but he'd be like, but but look at them in the NBA now. So right. like, I that's how I, you recruit. Yeah. I trained him up, you know. You'll struggle in college, but then you'll go and make a hundred million dollars standing on your head. It is just hard to understand how Conzo Martin's recruiting so much worse than Kermit Davis. I just there's just so much about recruiting that I just you know these like tiny details. Like I'm sure that I'm sure that that, that there's like a real reason behind this. 
like a real quantifiable reason. I just really want to be in the know, but but not do any work to get to get in the know, you know. Yes. Well, that's that's your problem, Brad. You gotta you gotta start texting coaches and breaking Syracuse to South Alabama transfers. Get to the. Yeah. The coaches should be coming to me with all all these like, well, actually, the the reason why Conzo Martin can't recruit is X Y and Z. But I enjoy when I I enjoy when I tweet something knowing that a coach is going to text me about that, like uh, knowing who is going to text me about it as soon as I tweet it, and it happens. It's very funny. I have lots of sources. But but with with your uh, JUCO uh, JUCO contacts and. Juco sources, please ask them about why yes. why these high major guys aren't 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 redshirting because it's keeping me up at night. I will ask a couple folks, see what I can find out. That's probably it for the show. Uh, we appreciate you all listening. This has been fantastic. Again, college football is back. College basketball will be back soon, hopefully. Uh, wishing all the best to all of those uh, starting schools, starting uh, you know, getting back to classes on campus. If you're in the college realm, and uh, we will see you next week.